Good morning, Exchange. I hope that you are well and uh, you have entered into this what we call Holy Week in a way that reminds you of the goodness and faithfulness, the long suffering, the mercy, the grace of God. So let me remind you of a couple things. Uh, on Friday, we have something called a Good Friday service. And typically, you know, one of the ploys from leaders to get people to come is to say, you, you cannot miss this. You can, uh, but you will enjoy it thoroughly. I promise that our team has been working really hard uh, to put together a service of one hour that's going to be very impactful, very meaningful, and tune your heart towards uh, this incredible sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. And so I want to invite you to something that's going to be very meaningful. Friday night at 6.30 right here, uh, we've planned it to be just at an hour. Uh, lots of great scripture reading, song, uh, some meditation, uh, and we'll do the Lord's Supper in a very unique and meaningful way together that night. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. Okay, so, uh, so you can miss it, uh, but I would not advise it. I'm just, you know, uh, so that's where we're at on that. So um, today's Palm Sunday, uh, and it's the Sunday that we remember Christ as he entered Jerusalem seated on a donkey. Preparation for the Passover, crucifixion, and resurrection. And sometimes I think if, if I'm honest, it's hard to place ourselves there. And it's hard to place ourselves in a place uh, where, where all of Scripture, like the Gospels, are leading up to this moment. In fact, two of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they spend at least a quarter of their words focusing on this last week. One would, uh, about a third, and John, uh, most would say he spends half of his words on this last week of Jesus. And so many times as we go through it, it's kind of just like another mile marker that we have trouble getting uh, ourselves in pace with and in step with in a way that causes us to pause and to stop and to reflect on what this week was like for the life of Christ. And not only this week, but all of the life of Christ that would lead up to this week was, was literally pushing and funneling him to this week at the will of the, at the, will of the Father. And so uh, I wanted to do something a little bit different today. And I hate myself for it. I literally hate myself for this, right? I've done it one time before. Uh, and this is not this, like I literally, as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm thinking to myself, is there, there's gotta be another way that I can do this. I've planned it, but I'm gonna, I'm not gonna bail. So today I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach about 10 chapters uh, from the voice of Peter. I'm gonna look at, at the last several weeks of Christ's life of what it must have been like for the early church to sit down at the Lord's table with Peter. And if you think about this, maybe 10 years after the resurrection, a lot of the letters that we have from uh, scripture had not been written yet. Matthew wasn't written until 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. So the church may be seated down, there may be uh, bread and wine in front of them, and they may be wondering, what is this all about? How does this tie into Jesus and why does it matter? I think Peter would have a lot to say about that. And I think as Peter would enter in into that gathering into the church, he would in some ways try to bring them in through their imagination and through his life and through his story about what this week of the Passover and this week of Palm Sunday and the crucifixion and the resurrection was all about. 
I don't know that he would start with the Passover and I don't know that he would start with the Lord's Supper. I think maybe as Peter would stand or sit and he would see the bread, he might start way before. And in my imagination, it might sound like this. You know, when I look at bread, it's hard for me not to remember the words and the stories and the lessons that Christ would often tell us. The way that he would use bread and all of the, the lessons that he would push us towards, of course, he would say things like, he's the bread of life. And, and indeed, our souls without the bread of our Savior would decay. They would rot away without a way back to God. We need Christ in our life. But he would also use this, this metaphor of bread and leaven, also pointing all the way back to the Exodus where the, uh, the Egyptians would hold our brothers and our fathers in slavery and they would leave the land without leaven in their bread. There's this one moment where the brothers, Jesus went along into the sea and the brothers, uh, we, we, we came across the sea uh, after Jesus. We had become busy, we'd become distracted and we'd forgotten the bread. And so we come to this moment, we come up to the shoreline and we begin to argue. And, and then we don't know that Jesus knows that we have forgotten the bread. But as we go onto the shore, he says this phrase, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We think he's just messing with us. We think he's making fun of us because we forgot the bread. And Jesus does something that we had seen him do once before, twice before, and that we would see him do many times later. He answered our thoughts. He says, I'm not talking about bread. Don't you remember the 4,000? And don't you remember the 5,000? I don't worry about bread. He says, I'm talking about the leaven in the hearts of the Pharisees. What I'm talking about is the religion in the hearts of the Pharisees that might make you miss me. He says, the most religious rulers in this world, they can't see me because their hearts are so corrupt. Their hearts are filled with themselves. I'm not talking about bread, he says. He answers our thoughts and he pushes us not to miss him. See, Jesus would often say that the most religious in this world would miss him. They would focus on who they thought the Messiah should be rather than who he actually was. I guess that's why a few days later, he took us up on top of a mountain, a mountain on the region of Caesarea Philippi. You know it. It's the one that's filled with false gods and idol worship. It was then, it still is today. And he takes us up on top of this mountain and he asks us this question as we look at all the monuments to all of these gods. And he says these words and he asks this question, who do they think that I am? It's a little awkward, I have to admit, because Jesus just answered our thoughts. And he asks a question and surely he knows who we have heard that they say that they, that he is in the market square, in the, in the business places. As we go to the shore, they say a lot of things about Jesus. And knowing that Jesus knew our thoughts, we probably took the easy path and we said some of the better ones, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, other prophets and crazy people. And so he turns to us, the brothers, and he looks and he, and he asks another question. He asks it in the plural sense, and he asks it, and who do yourselves say that I am? But by the time that he got to the question mark of this, uh, the question, 
his eyes locked on me. And though he said it as a question to all of us, he asked me and locked his eyes on me and refused to look away. Who do you say that I am? It was as if Jesus knew that I needed to know. That I needed to bury this truth deep into my heart. It was as if Jesus knew that all of this time I had looked at him and seen him and had the chance to miss him. In that moment, I said, I believe that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And in that moment, Jesus came to me and he took my face and he smiled like a father who just watched his son catch his first fish. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, not because you figured this out, but because my father has revealed this to you and is beginning to reveal this to all men. I thought at that moment that this was the moment that Jesus would begin to reveal his plan for the kingdom, for the one that he would reign in, for the one that he would rule in. I thought that this moment was the moment that Jesus would start to unveil his plans to overthrow Rome, to rule from the the tabernacle, to overthrow all of our oppressors. And then instead, this is the moment that Jesus began to speak of his death. He began to tell us how he would go to Jerusalem and that he would fall at the hands of the high priests, the the prophets, the scribes, the most religious ones, the ones who were supposed to wait and watch for the Messiah. He would die at their hands. We couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. Not just because it wasn't true, but because it couldn't happen. I mean, I'd seen Jesus do all kinds of crazy things, and yet he's saying that he's going to willingly go to Jerusalem and allow the most religious leaders to put him to death. I couldn't stand the thought. So I pulled Jesus aside. I didn't want to do it in front of the others. I pulled him aside and I said, Jesus, you can't talk like this. You you can't say these things. You can't say these things in front of others. It's diminished. Nobody wants to follow you to death, Jesus. And not only that, you can't die. You are the Messiah. We won't allow it. This was the second time that Jesus grabbed my face. He said, get behind me, Satan. He didn't say it in a way that was disappointed. He didn't say it in a way that he was frustrated. He said it in a way like he was tempted. In fact, he said, I I was being a stumbling block to him, that I was getting ready to get it in between him and the will of the Father. And I think that is the moment that I began to know that he's submitting all of himself, every minute, every purpose, every word, the Father. It was just six days later that he woke me up along with James and John early in the morning. I thought it was just another routine way that Jesus was gonna pray to go off by himself. He did this often, as you know. And we get up to the mountain And about the time we started to pray, his face began to shine like the sun, his clothes like the sun, so bright that we could not even stand to look at him. So I shield my eyes and I shield every part of me. And at the moment that I had the courage to look up, 
There was two others with him. Two others that I didn't recognize, that I didn't know, and you're gonna think that I'm crazy. He introduced them as Moses and Elijah. Like he had known them before, as if they were friends being reunited. I have to be honest, John says that he's gonna write about this at some point. I was starstruck. And yes, I did ask Moses if I could keep his staff. Maybe just touch it. In that moment, I thought that was the moment that Jesus would make his kingdom here. In fact, I offered to build him, Jesus, and Elijah, and Moses three tabernacles so that they could rule and reign at the top of this mountain together. And then I was coming up with this plan. I was looking at James and John trying to gather materials, and this voice from heaven comes down and shatters our bodies to the ground. And he says, this is my son. He doesn't even address Moses. He doesn't acknowledge Elijah. He says, this is my son in a way to say, don't miss Jesus, Peter. And he says these words, Yahweh speaks these words from heaven. This is my son and who I am pleased. Listen. And he says this, listen to him. It's as if Yahweh was begging me, Peter, don't miss Jesus. I guess he knew that we could all miss Jesus. You know, from that moment, we come down the mountain and Jesus starts to set his eyes on Jerusalem in a way that's absolutely dedicated to his father's will. He starts to talk and set the world upside down, the kingdom upside down. He welcomes the poor, the broken, the children. He heals the lame, the sick, the deaf, the blind. He raises the dead. All with a mission towards Jerusalem. And as he's doing all these miracles, he sends two brothers off into the city and he says to them, there will be a donkey tied to a post with its colt who has never been ridden. Go to this city to untie the colt, and if anyone asks of you, they will let you go with this. And they did. They literally let them walk out of the city with this donkey and a colt. It was as if he knows all things, sees all things, hears all things, and commands all things. Lessons that I have seen before that I'm still learning now. What's crazy about this scenario, though, is that Jesus would ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. It's crazy to set yourself up on a cult that's never been ridden before in front of everyone, parading yourself. But it's another thing to mark yourself as the king and the son of David that the prophets wrote about riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. The prophets would write that this one would come humble, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. The same prophets, by the way, would also say that this one who came humbly into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, would be crushed, broken, pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities. 
our sins would fall on him. He wasn't coming in in a way to say, look at me, here I am. He was coming in to say, I'm here for you. Don't miss me. I don't, I don't know if, if I would believe it if I wasn't there, but on that day, he rides into Jerusalem and he rides in on a donkey and the crowds are shouting, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And if I wasn't there on both days, I wouldn't believe that this crowd saying Hosanna on this day would say Barabbas on this day. I wouldn't believe that this crowd saying son of David on this day would saying crucify him on this day it's hard to believe that he was just in front of them he healed the blind the sick the deaf the lame he raised the dead and they missed him they were so focused on who they wanted him to be they couldn't see him for who he was. They wanted him so desperately to fulfill their mission, they weren't able to see his mission. And you would think in that moment that Jesus would ride through Jerusalem and he would be devastated, or maybe even as he was celebrated, he would look on them with disgust, and yet he did something totally different. He goes up to the top of Jerusalem where he sees it, and he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, how often I wanted to gather you and your children together in a way that a hen gathers her chicks, and you were unwilling. I came to you over and over and over again. You missed me. You missed all of me. It wasn't just that day, that the Palm Sunday. Uh, it was the whole week uh, turned upside down. Later that week, Jesus invited us to sit at the table with him, this table that we celebrate. He brings us in, and while we were eating, he stops the meal. He breaks another piece of bread. He gives thanks. And after blessing, he says, take and eat. This is my body. It didn't make very much sense then. It makes more sense now. He did the same thing with the cup. He gave it to them and he said, drink from it. This is my blood of the new covenant which is being poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. You know, he says this, I think, in a way that confuses us all on the night that he was betrayed. Not just by Judas, but by us all. Before he spoke the words, this is my covenant. This is the one that I gave to you, that I'm giving to you, the forgiveness of the sins. Before he speaks those words, he washed our feet. All of us. After he speaks those words, he says, you'll all fall away from me. Every single one. 
and fulfill the law of the prophets. He says, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. All of you will leave. But after I've been raised, I'll go to Galilee and meet you there. We didn't believe it then. We didn't believe it after the resurrection, to be honest. And I'll be honest, in that moment he says, we'll all fall away. I thought, not me. I didn't just think it. I said it. I looked around the room to all the others and I thought, yeah, all of you guys might walk away from Jesus, but not me. Follow me and I'll make sure you stay close to Jesus. This was the third time that Jesus grabbed my face. He said, Peter, before morning, you'll, you'll deny me three times. But he didn't say it in a way that he was disgusted or disappointed. It was almost with a confidence that he knew it would happen, but it wouldn't be the end. Again, I denied Jesus and I said, even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. Jesus knew. He leads us out of the room and we go through the Kidron Valley to a garden that we liked to, to go to, that Jesus liked to go to. He left most of the brothers at the entrance to the garden and he pulled myself and James and John further into the garden as Jesus prays. And I, I've never seen him like this. Normally Jesus encounters everyone and everything with a confidence like he was on the boat the night that the storm almost took all of our lives completely calm. But for some reason this night, it was different. He was in anguish. He even told us that he was in anguish to the point of death. It was as if I could see his heart bursting inside of him. He asked us to pray. He went a little bit further and I don't remember at what point I fell asleep, but I do remember him begging the father if there's any other way. Let this cup pass. One of the last things I remember, he said, but not my will, but yours. The next thing I know, Jesus was standing over top of all three. And this was the fourth time he grabbed my face. And he said, Peter, not even for an hour, Just one hour, Peter. It happened a couple more times. Jesus would leave. And again, I heard him ask the Father, if this would it be any other way. And again, he came. He left again. He came again. On the third time, he... He says, my soul's crushing inside of me. 
As he looks up, he says, Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And one of those, Judas, who was with us for all of the years, all of the miracles, Judas carried one of the baskets full of bread. Judas was the one who carried away the lame man's mat. Still baffles me how someone can be so close to Jesus and miss him. Maybe Judas was so wrapped up in who he thought Jesus should be and how the kingdom should come. Maybe he was willing to do whatever it took to press Jesus into that spot, I don't know. But what I do know is that he completely betrayed him. He takes him as if Jesus is some criminal. They come with clubs and swords. You'll probably hear this story at some point too. I took out my sword. And I swung it. And I cut the ear of the high priest's slave off. I was totally aiming for his ear. Okay? Okay, I wasn't. I'm a sailor. I'd never used the sword before. Jesus picks it off the ground. And he puts it back on this man's head. Like a potter who shapes clay. Like he had done it before. He says, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call all the angels in the entire world and universe to this moment when I would walk away. Peter, you don't know that why I'm here. Everybody did scatter just like they had said. And those, when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the high priest illegally for a trial, illegally. And I followed at a distance. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I knew I loved Jesus. I knew I couldn't just watch and let him be taken captive like this, but I didn't know what to do. And so I sat outside of the court waiting to hear what they were going to say, waiting to hear what they were going to do. It was difficult to make my way through all of the noise, through all the emotions. I couldn't hardly hear anything past the sound of my heart beating. But I did hear the moment where Caiaphas yelled, blasphemy. And the next moment, as if it was just seconds, I heard the assembly yell, death. And then I heard something that broke me. I heard them beating him. All I could hear was the smacks and the anguish. In that moment, I was sitting by the fire and I'd used my sword once before and I began to stand up. I put my hand on my sword and as I stood up, I was met by a slave girl looking me right in the eyes and she said, you were with him. 
This is the first time. The first time I just said, I don't know what you're talking about. I pulled my cloak over my head and I went outside of the gate. Another servant woman was there and she met me and she looked at me and she said, you were with this man of Nazareth. This time I didn't say, I don't know what you're talking about. This time it's more personal. This time I said, I don't know the man. Jesus was right, that wasn't the last time. Once more. Once more, I had the opportunity, the chance to even stick up for him with who I am. Yet this time I began to curse and swear at them. I don't know him. I betrayed the only one who has ever known me and loved me. The only one who's known every secret of my heart. The only one who said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I betrayed him. I wept bitterly that night and the next day. It may have been the end of me except for two things. A few days later, I'd have breakfast on the beach with Jesus. That's a story for another day. But then I remembered the words that Jesus spoke to me that night that he was betrayed and that I betrayed him. He says, this is a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. See, I remembered that Jesus offered me the forgiveness of all of my sins. And when he spoke these words, he also spoke the words that he knew that I would betray him. He knew that I would walk away from him, and yet he still invites me to the table. He invites me to the table and pulls a seed out for me, knowing that I'm not perfect, knowing that I will not be perfect. But that's who Jesus is. He's perfect. And he invites you to his table. Don't miss the seat at his table. See, when Jesus invites you to the table and he speaks these words and he says, this is my covenant, this is the permanent covenant. This is the one that forgives all sins. This isn't like the old covenant that our fathers once walked in. This is the new covenant. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we'll take this supper together 
just like we did that night. And we'll take it because he has invited us to the table. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, whatever details your story has, he invites you to the table. He invites you to the table. Don't miss Jesus. A few years later, Peter would write these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then in this you greatly rejoice, even now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found as a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the salvation that we honor and celebrate and come to today. That he, the creator of the world, sets a table before our enemies and invites us to it. You are invited to the table, the table of salvation, the table of forgiveness, the table of relationship with Christ. You are invited. No matter what, is in your life and has been or will be, you are invited to the table. The apostle Paul would later say, those who are living their lives in desperate search and pursuit of Christ are invited to the table. He invites you to the table. It doesn't mean we have it figured out. Just like Peter. He invites you to the table. Today, as Jesse plays for us, we're going to open up the table and you're going to have the chance to take as you wish, as you're ready. I would invite you to reflect on this truth. Christ has invited you to the table. And we respond by remembering him and the sacrifice he made so that we could come to the table. Father, thank you so much 
for giving us the chance to see you through Christ. Lord, help us not miss you. Let us see you clearly today as we remember and respond to you. Thank you for the invitation to the table. Thank you for the price that you had to pay so that we could be seated at the table. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. As you're ready, as the Lord leads, you're free to come to the table. And remember in this great way, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us.